final chapter of the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to read the first six verses, and then having read these verses, I will pray and then we'll study. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we deal with this text this morning, Lord, that you will bless our time. Lord, guide me, enable me to teach through your word accurately, and may your spirit speak through your word, Lord. May the things we need to hear be said, may the things you don't want to be said remain unsaid. May we see the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text. May our hearts be upon it, and may your spirit within us illuminate it for us. And ultimately, Lord, may he change us. We don't want to see your word and then go away and then forget about it and for it not to impact us. We want to be changed. We want to see your word and to see your son and to become more like him. So change us by your spirit, we pray. Help us to love one another more than we currently do. And may you be glorified. By this we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Chapter 12. We finished last week. It was uh, Memorial Weekend and so many were away. If you were away, I encourage you to catch up. The video and audio is all online at the church website. Um, it was a significant passage because it was, as it were, the crescendo of the main argument um, of the book of Hebrews. Having done his theology, he gets into the practical how we live in light of that. And really, I felt that the end of chapter 12 is pretty much the crescendo of the book. It's not to say that it's finished, and it's certainly not to say, as some scholars will try and tell us, that chapter 13 was some sort of appendix that was added later. Not the case at all. This follows and flows on from chapter 12 quite nicely. So let's look back at chapter 12 briefly and just see our flow. When he's talking about uh, the discipline of God and the effects of that, and therefore picking ourselves up and pushing on, he does talk several times in chapter 12 about the importance of what we do and how that then impacts upon others. If you look back in chapter 12 and verse 15, uh, or let's go to verse 14 actually, strive for peace with everyone. And so there is this need for this um, peaceful coexistence. And he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. So in, in that verse 15, there's, there's, there is the importance of church in two ways. There's the importance of church insofar as 
We have to ensure that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God. And we saw contextually that the grace of God there is not referring to people being saved so much as, to ref- as referring to not losing out on the blessings of God because of sin. It's the context from chapter 4. And so it's important that we as a church make sure that nobody here misses out because they're in sin. It's important that no root of bitterness springs up. And that, again, by way of context and intertextuality, we saw at the time that that meant that the root of bitterness was something coming up that was going to cause pain and hurt to other people. That somebody in their sin was going to negatively impact other people in the church. And he says, don't let that happen because many become defiled. There is no such thing in a church as isolated sin. It impacts and affects the whole body. We are a body. So in the context of chapter 12 and us being disciplined by God, being trained by God, this concept of mutual responsibility was very clearly there. And then when chapter 12 came to an end, He said to them, therefore, this is his conclusion from from chapter 12. It's his conclusion on the discipline issue. It's his conclusion on the practical, how we should live. And it's his conclusion on really the main thrust of the whole book of Hebrews. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And so, because of the blessings that we have in Christ, because of all that we've seen in Hebrews, because Christ is our great high priest, because he's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, because his sacrifice is greater than the animal sacrifices, because the tabernacle in heaven where he sprinkled his blood is greater than the tabernacle that was on earth, because the covenant that he has made, the eternal new covenant, is greater than the old covenant, because everything that we have is heavenly rather than earthly and is vastly superior to what's gone before. Because of that... Let's offer to God acceptable worship. Now, there is a deliberate play on words here. The term here, acceptable worship, would have been used in the Old Testament for the sacrifices being done in the right way. When the sacrifice said to offer an animal without blemish, you couldn't offer an animal with blemish. When a sacrifice had to be offered on a certain day, you couldn't offer it on a different day. When it had to be offered in a certain way, you couldn't offer it in a different way. You had to give sacrifice as God required. Now, one thing that's very clear throughout the book of Hebrews is that the old covenant is now gone, and the old law has gone with it. And the sacrificial system is now passed. But nevertheless, he deliberately uses the same phrase to say, you now mustn't, Hebrews, Jewish believers here being addressed who attempted to return to an old covenant style of worship. You mustn't go back to worshipping that way, but you must worship the way which is acceptable to God now. You've got to worship him in a way that is appropriate. And so that leads us to chapter 13, when we see here a kind of summary, which is a summary in a sense of a general statement of what a Christian life looks like, but at the same time is geared specifically to some of the issues within this congregation, within these, amongst these people. 
And so we're going to see a whole bunch of stuff here that gives us a picture of what it means to practically live out the Christian life. And so it begins, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. They've already said that they're loving one another, this is a good thing, but there is this emphasis on, on, um, on loving one another and the responsibility. That's why I read back to chapter 12. If they were to go back and sacrifice animals in the temple as if Christ had never come, which they were tempted to do because of family pressure and society pressure, because of that, if they were to go back and offer those sacrifices, then that would be, as we've seen in chapter 12, considered to be idolatry. That would be something that would be sinful, that would have a negative effect on the whole Christian community. And he says, you haven't done that yet. I know you're tempted. I know some of you are kind of itching to do this. I know there's pressure to do this. But he says, don't do it and keep loving one another. So I think here, this is one of those classic verses where, you know, you see it on the posters and the little post-it notes and the little, you know, it's one of these kind of lovely little verses that can just be plucked and quoted. Let brotherly love continue. And, and it's true. It's a, it's a general statement that is true. We should love one another. But I think in this context specifically, it is clearly saying, don't go back to that. Don't harm one another by sinning. But also there is this general statement to love one another. And what follows are going to be some of the specifics of how we go about loving one another. Now one thing before we, before we move on, notice here brotherly love. I know sometimes Christians loving people is something that the, the world wants us to, uh, to do. Oh, you're a Christian, you're supposed to treat me well or give me what I want or do whatever I want from you. You know, you know how non-Christians only know their Bible when it refers to what we should do to them and they're the interpreter of that, you know, that kind of thing. There is a part of the Bible, and we'll see this a lot in First Peter, where we are commanded to love our enemies. That those who would seek to hurt us, we're going to love them anyway. Nevertheless, there is a priority in love. There is a priority in love. Husbands, you have to love your wives more than any other person on the planet. They are number one in all of humanity for you to love. There's no competition in that regard. And in a similar kind of way, we as believers have brotherly love. The word brotherly here is in, in, incorporates men and women, brotherly and sisterly love if you want to have it expressed more inclusively if it helps you. But, but the idea is that we as Christians have a love one for another that isn't the same that we have for the rest of the world. You know, you will see a story on the news about something happening to somebody that lives in some far distant land and it's, it's a bit sad and you flick the channel. But if that same thing happens to somebody in your hometown, you might not know them still, but it feels a bit closer to home because it is quite literally a bit closer to home. But then if that same thing that you've easily able to swipe aside or brush aside or, 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 or move on and leave behind, when that happens to someone that you know and you love, it's very different. Why? Because you love your family more. And that's how it should be. And church is family. 
We are one body. And this is not a passage that teaches that in the depth that, say, Paul does in Romans or in Ephesians. But nevertheless, the principle is here and it will be expressed more clearly later. And so there is a responsibility that we have to love one another that goes beyond the responsibilities we have to the world at large. Make sure that we love each other. And by the way, is it a witness to the world when we love them, when they hate us? Yes. But it is a greater witness to the world when we love one another. See how they love each other is the thing that should distinguish us. And, uh, you know, I forgot to announce it in the announcements, but I'll put it in there now. Because it's Communion Sunday, we do the second offering today. And the second offering is not an offering that we do because we as a church say we want more money for us. It's a completely separate fund that we do for people in the church who are in need. And every month that we do this, I say, if you're in need and this is your home church, there's a fund for you. We've got to, we've got to help each other financially. We've got to help each other practically. You know, we're, we're in this situation in the church right now where we have these families who are lamenting and mourning and struggling and we have sicknesses and, 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 and people who are, are, are struggling day to day. We have all sorts of things going on and we have to be there for one another practically, financially, emotionally, spiritually and with our time, with our efforts. We've just got to love one another. And that's what he goes on to say more clearly in the following verses. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, don't think, by the way, that he's gone from brotherly to strangers and somehow he's making a, a contrast or he's talking about two different things. I, I know most of you here because we're a small church. But I don't think that the smaller churches that we have were normative for that era. This is before Christians went off and said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, teach this doctrine, well I'm not so I'm going to teach that doctrine, I'm going to, you know, and you end up with hundreds of different churches in one square mile or something, you know, like we get in these kind of parts. This was a time when cities often worshipped together, so people who worshipped together often didn't know each other, it was much more like the mega churches of today, and so there's this reality where brotherly love often involves loving people that you don't really know at all. They're strangers to you. And when it talks about hospitality to strangers, it's a very real situation. When I've been talking, guys, about the friends and family and the social, um, the social group rejecting these Jewish Christians because they refuse to join their, their Jewish brethren in worshipping by offering up Old Testament sacrifices... When, when they rejected them, they didn't just reject them, reject them, in the sense of, well, you know, I don't really like you anymore, I'm not going to play games with you, or I won't come round for Thanksgiving, or, you know, you know, I won't call you up every day anymore, or something like that. They often lost their families. They often lost their homes. Ultra-Orthodox Jews to this very day if one of the children converts to Christianity, will often hold a funeral for that child once they've been baptized. If they profess Christ, they'll think, well, maybe we can change their mind. But they understand baptism, and once they've been baptized, they will often have their own ceremony where they will hold a funeral for that child because they're now dead to them. 
People lost their families over this. So when it talks about not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers, that's a very real thing. We live in such comfortable lives, you know? We have, you know, houses with spare bedrooms and we have people who, you know, spare beds and rooms and, and having people live with you is a huge inconvenience. It's a huge inconvenience. Uh, multiple times in, in my married life, Jenny and I have had people live with us who've just needed somewhere to live. It's never been easy. Never been easy. But what do you do? Neglect hospitality? Can't do that. Bible says not to. And I think we are the thoughts and prayers generation, are we not? Having problems? Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. I tell you, we've, we've got to step our game up. We've got to be people who are willing to share our homes, share our wallets, share our time. Gosh, that's the hardest of all sometimes, is it not? And I tell you, one of the hardest of all is share our hearts. You know the easiest way to get through life without being affected by difficult stuff? Don't care. Just stop caring. Cut yourself off from people. Don't be close to people. So much easier. Oh my goodness, is life easier when you just don't care about people? So much easier. Highly recommend it. Really good for your mental health. But unfortunately not biblical. We're called to have the kind of relationships that when someone's heart breaks, our heart breaks for them. We're called to have the kind of relationships where when someone's in trouble, we do whatever we can to help them. So don't neglect hospitality. And he says here, one, and here we kind of lose our flow a little bit because we can't help but be distracted by such a strange statement. It's, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't want to spend forever on this, but I can't ignore it. It's the joy of expository preaching. We don't get to ignore the awkward bits, do we? couple of things for us to observe. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying exactly what he seems to be saying. He's saying that some of you have been hospitable to people. You've housed people. You've looked after people. You have people into your home. You've fed them. You've clothed them. You've given them meals. You've looked after people. And in doing so, completely unbeknownst to you, you've entertained angels. That's what he's saying. Now, first things first. I've said this many, many times. And I'll say it again now. Because here is the clearest example of it. Angels don't have, thank you, it is, it is Christian mythology and it comes from the cherubim and seraphim which sometimes do have wings that are angelic beings. But saying that, well, they're angelic beings so all angelic beings have wings is like someone saying, well, you know, I saw a dog and it had four legs, so I guess everything that lives on the earth has four legs. I mean, that's ridiculous logic. The seraphim, and, uh, uh, the seraphim, the cherubim, the cherubim, and the angels are the angels, and the archangels are the archangels. And we don't get huge amounts of detail, but we get enough detail to know that the angels don't have wings. When Peter was um, in the book of Acts, got out from prison, and he came and knocked on the door, they're like, look, open the door and double take and said, that can't be Peter, he's in prison. They thought maybe it's his angel which then brings us to a whole other topic of guardian angels, and I'm not even going there. But let's just suffice to say this. 
that there are angels, they are God's messengers, and they do, when they're here on earth, take predominantly speaking human form. Now, because this comes so soon after Hebrews 11. Yes, I know, we taught it probably months ago now, it doesn't seem like very soon, but this was a sermon that was read out in one hit, okay? So from their perspective, Hebrews 11 was very much just before, and we were going through the story of the patriarchs. I can't help but think that when he mentions this, in his mind is Genesis chapter 18. You don't need to turn there, I'm going to turn there. In Genesis 17, we saw the whole story of um, Isaac and the prophecy of his birth and then his birth and what have you. And we, we again and again have these phrases, God said to Abraham, God said to Abraham. And, and I, I mentioned this at the time, and I, and I often talk about this, that again, we are, we are distracted by Christianese of our modern era. We're distracted by the way that Christians say God said this and God said that in completely unbiblical ways. When, when God said to Abraham and Abram hears something, what actually happened is that God said something. He heard God. Because then in chapter 18 it begins, and the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham. What does that mean? What does it mean that Yahweh appeared to him? It means he appeared before him. And just in case we aren't sure about that, it then goes to tell us, as he sat at the, the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, three men were standing in front of him. Three men were standing in front of him. And as the text goes on, it becomes very clear that one of those men is in fact Yahweh, God himself, coming before Abraham, and the other two are angels who are then dispatched off to Sodom and Gomorrah, where when they get there, they're clearly mistaken as men, which is clearly seen in the appropriate intentions of those of the city, for those who know the story. So these angels appear to be men. Now, at the same time, Abraham sees the men coming and he bows down and says, O oh Lord, if I have found favour in your sight. So in some way, he knew that these just weren't regular men. But then God has spoken to Abraham before and appeared to Abraham before. And so perhaps Abraham knew when he saw this man that this is the Lord. And I certainly believe here, just I should say in passing, that this is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. This is, this is who we know as Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation, coming and appearing as a man. And the angels who are there, they take a, a, an almost identical form. Three men. And so they're taking that form. And so the possibility of us uh, hosting angels is clearly biblically possible. It's clearly biblically possible. I can pretty much assure you that the people who stayed with me weren't angels, but that's another story. But it's certainly possible. And I think that the link here with Genesis 18, for our intertextuality here, the link here is simply this, that he's talking about you need to be, you know, you, you, do you think that the, the saints of old offered sacrifices, so you have to offer sacrifices? No, what, what is the common thread amongst them is that they were faithful. That's Genesis, um, Hebrews chapter 11. And so Abraham in his faithfulness was trying to give service to God and in doing so was, was uh, hospitable to the three men when they came. And therefore you need to be 
hospitable, hospitable to the three men that might come to you, or the two men, or the one man, the one woman, or whoever it comes to, into your path, you need to be hospitable. Now, some people at this point um, tone this passage down a bit. And the reason they do that is actually quite legitimate. The word angels here literally means messengers. Angels are God's messengers. And occasionally in the Bible, the word messenger, the word angel, means literally a messenger as opposed to an angelic being. The word can mean both. And so some people here will say that God sends people to you. They're essentially his messengers, his representatives, and that you need to be hospitable to them. I think there's a deliberate play on words here. I don't want to negate the fact that angels couldn't be amongst us without us being aware. But on the other hand... I don't want us to somehow think that this has to refer to that. It's one of those passages that you could take either way. But either way, I think that if we allow for it to be messengers, it's to some degree at least, it does seem to communicate this, that when somebody comes with a need to you, that you have a responsibility to be hospitable to them, to give them what they don't have, to meet their needs, to help them where you can help them, but that you yourself can be receiving from God in the act of doing that. And I do think that however we take the angels, how literally or otherwise, I do think there is that implication in the way that it's worded. And I will tell you this. We, as I've said, have had many people... Uh, over the years who we have um, been, you know, given hosp hosp um, hospitality towards, sometimes for quite extended periods of time. And as I've said, I can guarantee you that none of them were literally angels because they weren't holy and without blemish. So they, they, were, they were definitely not literally angels. But each and every one of them, through them being there and us giving, we received. We were blessed. God molded us, changed us, helped us, blessed us in various different ways. I think that as we come into this whole passage talking about service and offering worship to God and serving God, that we need to understand <clears throat> the principle, which is that what we give gets pressed down and given back. We receive back more when we give. And I know that the TV evangelists abuse those kind of verses and say, give me all your money and you'll be rich and all that kind of nonsense. And of course, you guys know I reject that, that heresy. Um, but at the same time, there is a principle there that is true, which is that we, if we hold back to hold on to what we have, we lose out. And if we freely give, then we're able to freely receive. And there's a good principle at work there, which I think is seen in this text. Now, <clears throat> verse 3 takes it a step further. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. When he says remember those who are in prison, it doesn't mean, <coughs> we're so and so. Oh yeah, they're in prison still, I remember. <coughs> it's very clear what it means here. Remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison. If you were there, what would you want? If you were in prison, and, and again, this is just like with the hospitality verse before it. This is the crushing reality of the situation of the, 
of the book that we've been looking at for this last year. That these people weren't just like, oh, it would be easier for me if I sacrifice you know, in the temple. This is people who are losing their jobs. This is people who are being prosecuted. This is people who are losing their homes, losing their families. There's real cost here for these people. And for those whose stand means that they end up in prison, he says, remember them as if you were in prison too. And I love how it's partnered, it's paralleled with the second half of the verse. And, there's your connection, those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Now, so often in the Hebrew way of thinking, there are these parallels. You see it in Proverbs a lot, you see it sometimes in Psalms, you see it throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament because of the Hebrew thinking, where you have these things that are parallel. A and B and A and B. You know? Um, love, um, love your wife, um, be affectionate to your betrothed. It's kind of like synonymous, you know, A and B, A and B, but said in different ways. And it's that kind of parallelism that's being done here. So you've got those who are in prison, and you're going you're gonna to love those people, you're going to think about them, you're going to consider them as if you too were in prison. And the parallel here is those who are mistreated. And so the A and the A are very clear to see. People who are in prison are suffering, and people who are being mistreated are suffering as well. Correct? So we're, we're, we're to have compassion and empathy, I think is a better word, on those who are suffering in these various ways. But look at the second half. The parallel with as though you're in prison is since you are in the body. If Paul says in Romans, he says, look, the hand can't say to the foot, well, you don't matter. You know, oh, my foot's got gangrene. Not to worry about it. I'm fine. My hand's all good. You know, the body is connected and everything works together and everything affects one another. And so the reality is, is that when someone is mistreated, you're being mistreated. Come on, you know how it is. If you're a parent and your kid comes home from school and they says, I'm being bullied and they got a huge black eye... You're not going to say, oh, well, whatever. You're going to go, who's done that to my son, to my daughter, to my child? Who, who would, you know, you feel like you've been abused. Why? Because the love that you have with your child is so deep. The connection is so strong that a wound to them is a wound to you. Look around this church. Think about the people who are here. Think about the people who call this church home that you know because you see them week to week. Do you care for them that strongly? Does your heart break when their hearts break? Because I'll be honest with you, it doesn't come naturally to any of us. It doesn't come naturally to any of us because we share something in common. A sinful, selfish heart. It doesn't come natural. And when things don't come naturally to you, what do you have to do? Say, that's not my gift and leave it? You've got to work at it. You've got to train yourself. You know? It would be like someone, <clears throat> you know, who's never done a day's exercise in their life and is overweight saying, I'm going to go running. And they, they run about 100 yards and they say, just not my thing. Can't do it. That's not how it is. What it is, is that you can't do it because you haven't done it. 
So you need to train so you can do it. And you keep repeating and you keep going. And you know what? If we're not good at loving, what do we have to do? We have to train ourselves to love. Because while you may have the option to not run, to not do this particular skill, or not train yourself to do that particular exercise, we do not have a choice here. We are commanded to love as Christ has loved us. And so we need to train ourselves to love. And we are a body. And I, I don't want anybody, when they hear someone suffering in the church, and it doesn't really impact them, I don't want you to feel guilty. But I want you to recognize that's not how it should be. And I want you to ask yourself what you can do to change that. You see, if you come to church and you see someone and say, hello, how are you? What's your name? What do you do for a living? Oh, that's nice. And then the next time you see them, you say, oh, hi, so-and-so. Then your growth of love is astonishingly slow. Real slow. Like treacle. And superficiality... I want to be careful. <laughs> I don't want to beat you up today. But we've got to do this, haven't we? Superficiality is our, is our protection. It's our protective mechanism so we don't get too close. Because when we get close, we've got to do more, and we've got to care more, and we've got to feel more. And it hurts, and it costs. And that doesn't mean to say that everybody in this church has to be a best friend. Okay? It doesn't work that way. You know? As the church grows, I can't love you all the same. In my heart, I can't. I don't have enough room to, uh, or enough time to do that. And so we're naturally drawn to some people. We get closer to some than to others, and that's how it is. That's how it is in life. That's fine. That's not a problem. But church, let's make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. Let's make sure everybody is loved. And when we do have friendships that we naturally make, when we do have people that we're more inclined to and more akin to, then let's make those relationships count. Okay? My wife, Jenny, you know, she used to say this in England all the time, that the thing that bugged her about church more than anything else was superficiality. You know? that you'd be there, that, you know, I'd be at church, I'd preach my heart out for however long, and I, there's a sermon, and then people would go away, and it'd be, so yeah, how's your week been, what's the weather like, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't want you to make me feel guilty if, you, if anyone asks you what the, you know, there was a really important football game yesterday, by the way, so, you know, there are things we can talk about afterwards, that's fine, that's not a problem, but it's simply to say, don't hide behind superficiality. Dare to care. There's a little catchphrase if ever there was one. Easy to remember. Dare to care. Be prepared to make the sacrifices. Because I tell you, it hurts to care. It sucks the life out of you. My son, Tim, who many of you know, had to go back to England for visa issues. He's having a rough time right now. Really hard time. And he calls me every day. And I say to him, Tim, I love you. You can call me every day. You can call me twice or three times every day. 
but you've got 20 minutes. He takes half an hour, but at least I know it won't take 45. You know why? Not because I don't love him enough to give him more time, not because I'm not prepared to give him more time, but because I care so much about what he communicates and his pain that it sucks the life out of me. And I've got to care for other people too. Caring is horrible. It's really horrible. It's just, and it is the way of our, and, and, and it's unspoken, folks. It's unspoken. It's not said, but it's true. And we live in this superficial society. And I tell you, if there's ever a city in the world that, that excels at superficiality, it's Los Angeles, I tell you, isn't it? We are a transient place. We are a city of images and, and, and sort of representation and display and look at this and look at that. And actual solid love and care and deep relationship that goes beyond liking an Instagram post and, and thumbs up on a Facebook status. It's not there. It's, it, it's not with us. And, and let me be really, really frank. Right now in this church, we've got, we've got Brian and Neva, whose son has just passed away. We've got Mark, who may not recover from cancer, and who, who, is, who's, who hasn't eaten anything for months. We've got, my wife hasn't done worship in the church for weeks, because her chronic fatigue, you know, from over a month, because her chronic fatigue is so bad that she can barely function. We've got Dorothea, who's, um, who's not been here for over a month because of her lung infection and, and, and all, all else that she struggles with. We pray for Carla, who's still struggling to recover. And we've got, um, you know, I'm going to forget people in the midst of all this Margie and her high blood pressure and we've got we've got all of these people in the church who are suffering and I know that there are people who who, who are struggling in their in their relationships and, and and have loved ones who are suffering and struggling and and you know what it's just so easy to let it pass you by it's so easy just to <coughs> oh yeah I've got to pray Lord I just pray for this person now you can I pray for you and you can tick it and you can because when you care it breaks your freaking heart every time it happens. Someone shares their pain with you and it breaks your heart. Someone's going through <clears throat> illness and it breaks your heart. Someone, someone has had a loss and it breaks your heart. And, and when you treat them as if it were you, that's what the text says. This is what I'm preaching on right now, right? In prison as though you were in prison. Suffering as though you were suffering. Do you know what it means? It means an awful lot more hurt than you would have if you kept yourself to yourself. So I'll say it one more time. Superficiality is the protective mechanism of this generation, this geographical location in particular, this, this time. It's our protection from really caring and really hurting. And church, we need to repent and we need to change. not going to get any easier if you look at verse 4 by the way let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous you see he's talking here about basic Christian living and right here in the midst of it is marriage you know people say well why, why do Christians make such a big deal about marriage and sex and things like that well you know he's summing up the basics of what it means he says look you can't go off and sacrifice animals anymore but you've got to still serve God you've got to worship God what does that look like well what does it look like is loving people caring for people and spinning off from that 
caring for that one in particular. And I want you to see that connection. This is not staccato. Is that the right musical term? Somebody's musical, give me a nod. Like boom, 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 boom. Yeah, okay, thank you. So this is not staccato where it's like this and then pause and this and then pause and this. These are all connected. The brotherly love is about us being one, one body and us caring. And he's just said the last expression is in the body. We as a church are a body. Where else do we have the expression one body in Christian analogies? Marriage. So it follows quite naturally. And here's the thinking, I think, of the, here's the flow of the passage. If interrelationships within the church matter, then marriage has to matter most of all. It has to. Because it is the ultimate relationship that supersedes all other relationships. And it's pointless loving everybody in the church if you're neglecting your spouse. Because they come first. That's how it works. And so when it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, all means all. If you are single and unmarried, if you are young and you've never been married, if you, maybe you're never going to be married, if you used to be married and you're now no longer married, you know, then, then you have to hold marriage in honor as well. People say, why is it that it's so important to Christians about, you know, why can't you accept same-sex marriage? Why can't you, why, why is this such a big issue to you and what have you? Let me tell you very, very clearly why. Ephesians 5 verse 32. Paul says that marriage is a profound mystery because it speaks of Christ and the church. Okay? In other words, the husband and wife represent Christ and the church. When Adam had Eve pulled from his side, literally, and he became one with Eve, that first marriage, that was a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. But they never knew it. And as marriage developed, and as God's covenant relationship with his people developed, they understood that the old covenant was the representation of the relationship between God and Israel. Israel was the wife of Yahweh. But the ultimate expression of marriage wasn't seen. That's what a mystery means. Something that was previously hidden that's now being revealed. And so Paul says, only now, post-cross, in New Covenant times, do we fully understand the extent of marriage. That marriage represents the relationship between what? Christ and the church. So very obviously, if you have man and man, Christ and Christ, you've now misrepresented the gospel. Marriage is a representation of the gospel. That's why it's a big issue to us. And by the way, that's why we do get het up about the so-called same-sex marriage, but it's why we should get het up about divorce and we don't. And I tell you what, the church has dropped the ball on this one so badly, I'm so ashamed of the evangelical church, we have done a terrible job here. If the, if the new covenant relationship between Christ and the church is what marriage represents, will Christ ever leave us? Is that covenant ever broken? Is there any way for that agreement to ever end? Is it ever going to be negated? Is there any exit clause or strategy? None, never, ever, ever, ever. Romans 8, if you need a reference for that. Those of you 
though he, he predestined, he called, those he calls, he justifies, those he justifies, he glorifies. Unbreakable chain of redemption. Never, ever is that going to be broken. And so marriage is this, is this holy thing because above every other relationship in the body, and look how important relationships are. I'm here preaching my heart to say to love each other and hurt with each other and care for each other. And now I'm saying pull back from that because remember there's one relationship that matters more than all. So if you're not married, it matters. It matters because you have to uphold marriage by recognizing what marriage is. And though you may not be married, you need to love people who are married. You need to allow for people who are married and you need to fight for people who are married. This is why people get married publicly. It's not so they can get photos on their Instagram account. The reason they get married publicly is because there is, a, there is something that's happening and God is a witness and those of us who go are a witness. Seriously, guys, if you are ever planning on getting divorced, do not invite me to your wedding because I stand there as a witness that you said till death do you part. And I'll be knocking on your door, and I am not kidding, and I am not exaggerating. I will be knocking on your door saying, no, it's not happening. You don't get to do that. And I have done that. I've done it in multiple marriages, multiple times, and I will continue to do it. It's not an option. Why? Because you represent Jesus in the church. Oh, your, your spouse sucks? I wonder if the church ever sucks. I wonder. I wonder if Jesus ever says, ah, oh, this spotless bride is perfect right now. Or I wonder if the, the, the actual, the wedding in heaven, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, that's when the bride is presented spotless. Not now, not yet. We're not the finished article. So Jesus knows a little bit about this. But does he discard us? Is he finished with us because we're unfaithful to him? Never. I'm running out of time anyway, and I'm not going to finish my passage. So I'm not going to get distracted by passages in Matthew uh, and in uh, Mark 10 that talk that Christians have manipulated and taken out of context and abused to try and suggest that unfaithfulness in marriage somehow should lead to divorce. That is not what the passages say, and that's not what Scripture teaches. When God sees our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. And marriage is a picture of that same covenant faithfulness love. So we can see then how everybody in the congregation is responsible to understand the priority, the importance of marriage, whether they're married or not, because we're all part of the same body. And he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And the marriage bed here is obviously representative. You know, it's... You can't any, you know, you can't, when, it, when the Bible says do not get drunk on wine, it doesn't mean you can get drunk on vodka, okay? When the Bible says do not defile the marriage bed, it doesn't mean it's okay in, in the armchair or anything like that. It, it's an analogy. It's basically saying here that, that sexual purity in marriage is very, very important because, and God will judge. Now, he's saying here, when God brings judgment to unbelief, it's for things like that. Now, we know our sins are forgiven. He's not suggesting otherwise. But what he's saying is, these are the kind of things that God's judgment came for, so they're not befitting to you as Christians. And notice here with the reference to both fornication and adultery, he's talking about sex outside of marriage, for those, sex outside of marriage for those who are unmarried, and sex outside of marriage for those who are married. That's the distinction between the two. There is one place 
for sex, and that's marriage. That's the only place. It's very, very clear. The, the, the text here is clear. The text elsewhere is clear. It's very, very clear. <coughs> Again, I think this is an area where the Christian church has dropped the ball, and it's gotten very, very uh, lackadaisical, to say the least. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody by being, um, uh, being too explicit. I save that for going through Song of Songs with James and Jessica on Tuesdays. Um, rather, I think I'll just be very vague here, but I hope you can read between the lines. But Christians today um, think that there is no problem in running the race as long as you don't cross the finish line. I think that analogy will suffice. Okay? And yet, look at the parallel here between fornication and adultery. Look at the parallel between sexual behavior when you're unmarried and sexual behavior when you're married. If you can get those two together, this is really simple, okay? If you're married, okay, and you go and greet somebody with a kiss on the cheek, I'm guessing most marriages, particularly if it's, if it's your Aunt Mildred at Thanksgiving, that's going to be okay, all right? But again, not wanting to be too explicit, read between the lines, there are certain types of kisses that you could do that if your spouse came into the room and you were engaging in such a kiss with someone who was not your spouse, that they would say, adultery! And they would be correct, would they not? Maybe not a full extent of adultery, but adulterous nonetheless, yes? So why, oh why, has the church somehow authorised, and I trust me, 90% of evangelical youth leaders do authorise it, why have they authorised the same kind of behaviour amongst people who are equally not married? I think we all know what sexual behaviour is. Because I think if you were married and you saw your spouse doing something with somebody else, you'd be very, very clear on what divides sexual behaviour from non-sexual behaviour, would you not? I think you would. So why, when it comes to people who are unmarried, is this a complicated issue? The answer is that it isn't, but it's an area where we succumb to our culture and we allow our culture to educate us rather than the scriptures. I will leave it at that and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. Finally, I'm going to do verse, first half of verse 5. It's Communion Sunday and I'm over time. So, no, in fact, you know what, I won't. I'm over time and it is Communion Sunday. So I'm, I need to pick up. I very cleverly got Arlene to read Psalm 118 because he quotes it in verse 6. So whoever's reading next week will be reading Psalm 118 again. It's a great psalm and it's worth hearing twice. But we will have to leave it there. I'm out of time. I do apologise. Um, I got a little excited and carried away in places. But this is the joy of expository preaching. We're back next week and we pick up where we left off. But let us simply end with this. Let's not lose the gist and the flow of the passage. Relationships are important. Your marriage relationship's important. The marriage relationship for us all is important. And relationships one amongst another are important. We are a body, we're united, we are one, and we must stick together. And that oneness will be seen now together as we take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us through your word and lord we pray that you would bless our time of communion together and uh, lord may we focus this morning on the oneness that we have as we share not alone not by ourselves but as we take it together
Amen. Amen. If the, uh, if the deacons would come forward to distribute the bread, um, if you're, if you're uh, not a regular here, anyone who, uh, anyone who loves Christ, anyone who is saved, is welcome to take communion with us. If there's any sin or unforgiveness in particular in your heart that you're aware of right now, <laughs> maybe the sermon brought a bit up for you, be good for you just to confess in your heart right now before we take communion. So I encourage you to do that while I'm speaking. Um, we normally would take a bit more time. I'm going to be quick today because I have gone over and I know that as much as we've got to treasure this, uh, this uh, feast that we have together, we must also love those who are doing children's ministry. So um, if you gents would pass the, the bread out. The bread, as you well know, has been broken. It represents the, blood, uh, the body of Jesus Christ. We have unleavened bread here. Yeast, which makes bread rise in the Bible, is representative of sin. As we see in the Hebrews, a little bit of sin spreads through the body. A little bit of sin spreads through the body. Christ was without sin. And he came. And he died in his sinless body. That we might live. I am very aware right now. That we as a church are going through many trials. I'm very aware that I this morning as I've preached to you. Have encouraged you to hurt more as others go through trials, to hurt with them. And it's a hard thing to do because it involves humbling ourselves. It involves understanding that our life and our comfort and our pleasure is not the most important thing. And the best model we have of that in Scripture is Jesus Christ, who set aside his majesty and eternal glory and came as man, was born a baby and grew and went through all of human existence and suffering. And the, the extent of that humbling, the extent of what he left and what he had, to go from being all-knowing to having to learn who he was, to go from being all-powerful to suckling at a mother's breast. The sacrifice of Christ in the incarnation was was astonishing and it was ultimately completed in his death on the cross. No matter what we do, no matter to what degree we humble ourselves and we suffer as a body, we never go before our Lord. We never go beyond him. He gave his body for us. He humbled himself for us that we might follow in his footsteps. Let's take his body together. And as the cups passed out, again, we're well aware this, what this represents. It represents the blood of Christ. That when Christ died, he shed his blood, that we would be redeemed from our sin. The sin would no longer be our master, but that Christ would. That we would no longer be people who lived as we want to live, do as we want to do. We thought 
perhaps in error that we were free before we were Christians, that we could live as we liked. We were never free. We were slaves to the sin that indwells us. We did what our sinful bodies wanted. We lived as our sinful desires required us to. We were slaves to sin. But Christ in his death, in the shedding of his blood, has set us free from sin. Not just that we could be with him in heaven for eternity, though we praise God for that, but has set us free from the power of sin that we might choose to live lives that are reasonable acts of service before him, that are acts of worship before him, that we might put aside our desires and our wants and we might be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. As we take this cup, we do so together. And as we do so together, we are making a statement as a group. We are saying that our hope and our trust is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That we trust in nothing else. And we are saying that we as a body are going to walk with him. And live for him. And we will make sure that none of us miss out on that grace. That none of us fall through the cracks. That none of us have roots of bitterness that spring up. That we together will walk together with the Lord that we share. Let's take the cup. Father, we thank you that you have cleansed us from our sin by the blood of your Son. We thank you that you have redeemed us from sin. We thank you that we can walk with you. Lord, may we be challenged this day to live as we should, to walk as we should. May we rejoice together. May we lament together. May we truly learn in these coming weeks what it means for us to be a body. And Lord, as we do so, may you be glorified for working through us. Amen.